1: The FT.
2: Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Brooke Masters. Just two topics this week The return of the rogue trader.
1: Kweku Aduboli, uh, Ghanaian born, based in London, was arrested in the early hours of Thursday morning last week for allegedly conducting around huge rogue trading positions uh, that have led to losses at UBS at $2.3 billion.
3: And Lloyd's Banking Group finance director Tim Tukey resigns. We had heard that he was getting increasingly nervous about the new strategy that was put across by Chief Executive Antonio Otto Osorio in June. He's starting to think the deterioration that we've seen in markets since then, and particularly in Ireland, where Lloyd's has a really big exposure, means again, you know, the bank might fail to meet these targets. Maybe he should jump ship before the pressure grows.
2: Joining me this week is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and hedge fund correspondent, Sam Jones. Let's start with the news over the weekend that Swiss bank UBS has suffered $2.3 billion in unauthorized trading losses. Sam, you want to tell us what happened?
1: details have been filtering through over the past few days, but basically a trader called Kweku Adeboli, Ghanaian-born, based in London, was arrested in the early hours of Thursday morning last week for allegedly conducting around huge rogue trading positions uh, that have led to losses at UBS at $2.3 billion. And the details have been coming through about what exactly those losses have been caused by and how exactly Aduboli was able to get away with it.
2: This comes at an interesting time, Charlene, for banks in Britain, because our uh, independent commissioner of banking just last week talked about trying to separate banks with large retail presences from dangerous prop trading. How does this play
3: into the debate and what does it tell us? Well, I think it was almost a perfect example of what we saw Sir John Vickers and the rest of the Independent Commission on Banking on Monday saying, you know, were the kinds of shocks that typically occur in investment banking divisions that, you know, they were trying to protect against sort of infecting the rest of the bank. And they were very quick to make the point on Thursday that this was a great illustration of what they were trying to prevent. Whether this means that other countries, particularly the Swiss, will copy the Vickers' efforts in the UK to break up or separate the banks remains unclear. You know, there wasn't a great deal of appetite for that ahead of this scandal. And in fact, Carsten Kengeta, the head of the investment bank at UBS, was in the FT last week saying, you know, he really didn't agree with the Vickers' proposals or think that they were the right solution to reform banks. So it seems unlikely that they're going to sort of follow suit on that.
2: Now, why was Karsten opposed to it? And do you think, in light of the fact that his bank has now suffered trading losses, do you think his position is undermined?
3: I think it it is. And, you know, there's been a lot of calls for both his head and that of Ozzy Grubel, the chief executive of of UBS. They are yet to give any indication that, that they're feeling the pressure. And they're both coming out with sort of rallying messages to staff and colleagues saying that, you know, the bank will continue along the same path. They're not planning to hive off the investment bank. They'll tighten up risk controls and do everything in their power. They were saying to stop this ever happening again, but they say it doesn't undermine the road that they're heading down themselves. I think he was opposed to the ring fencing because he felt that the very tough capital requirements that the Swiss particularly have been hit with since the financial crisis are enough. And actually, you know, UBS is likely to be able to withstand this kind of loss. It's a huge loss, but we don't think it's going to break the bank. And that almost vindicates these kind of capital requirements that have been put in place there. Sam, what does this tell us about risk
2: controls and whether we've really learned anything since Societe Generale had its own giant rogue trading scandal in 2008?
1: I think the interesting thing really here is because, you know, Ozzy Grubel came in, took over as chief executive of, of the bank, and his mission really was to scale back the investment risks that the investment bank was taking. And, you know, his, his first message to traders was don't lose money. And then in 2010, last year, he revised that to still don't lose money, but do more, I maybe take a bit more risk. But the point is that this wasn't actually a loss that was crystallized in a traditional prop trading account. Instead, this was in a client-facing business desk called Delta One that is is at a bank. It's designed to service clients from hedge funds through to retail clients through ETFs. So it's not a traditional prop role. It's actually something that I think analysts at JP Morgan called flow prop, which is where the positions are being taken ostensibly to, to help meet client needs, but that basically the bank in hedging its positions has an opportunity to sort of cream a little bit more off to make a little bit more money on its hedges and I think you know that's exactly the same kind of thing that Jerome Curviel was doing so interestingly enough, I mean going back to Charlene's point about the Vickers Commission uh, interestingly enough, this is the kind of activity that wouldn't necessarily be prohibited or in the US for example under the Volcker rule banned as prop trading, this is the kind of stuff that gets around that anyway and perhaps precisely because it's not prop trading, i.e. it's not so heavily regulated. It doesn't have such stringent risk requirements internally. That's where there are these cracks and that's where people like uh, Mr. Adeboli, if what UBS are alleging is true, can get away with racking up such huge losses without them being checked.
3: Wasn't it the case, Sam, though, that he should have had these hedges in place and he deliberately didn't? I mean, that's the allegation, right? So, Right.
1: So, I mean, what we understand is that from what UBS has said, they didn't detect these positions because they were allegedly hedged, i.e. on their risk books, they appeared as kind of risk neutral, which is what this desk should have specialised in doing. So you have a client position, client wants to take a certain amount of risk, and then the desk's job is to, is to find a way to hedge it in the market, but maybe not quite perfectly hedged. It, and in that imperfection to make a little bit of money. So this was allegedly there was a hedge in place except that apparently there was no hedge. It was fictitious and therefore actually they were just exposed to a huge amount of risk.
2: It's all going to be really interesting and I think we all want to know more about the details when they come up. Should we move on now to Lloyd's and the resignation of its chief financial officer? Charlene, tell us about this.
3: So the FT broke this story this morning that Tim Tookie, the FD at Lloyd's Banking Group, was leaving his role to move across to Friend's Life, the UK assurer. And this is particularly interesting because Mr. Tuki was the last of the old guard at Lloyd's, the last, you know, of Eric Daniel's sort of senior management team that orchestrated Lloyd's acquisition of HBOS at the height of the financial crisis. And, you know, he's been really quite under pressure ever since, and particularly since Antonio Otto Osorio came in as chief executive at the start of the year. He very quickly moved to get rid of some other key lieutenants of Eric Daniels, so uh, Helen Weir, Archie Kane, left within weeks of the new chief executive's arrival. Tim Tookie was the one Lloyds have constantly said was going to stay. There has been some investor pressure on him to go in recent months. But, you know, Lloyds made him one of the sort of figureheads behind their new strategy in June. He seemed to have a very integral part. But I think behind the scenes, there's been growing investor pressure on him to go. You know, he is associated with Lloyds past errors. And, you know, the time has come now for for him to move on. Do we think, Sam, whether that
2: investors will be satisfied by this?
1: It's hard to tell. I think you know some of the large, from my own perspective, obviously there's a number of hedge funds on the share register, uh, the largest being Lansdowne Partners, which has suffered by having such a big position in Lloyds over the past year. I think from their perspective, and certainly from a lot of investors' perspective, Lloyd's needs to move on, and now we've got post Vickers, and you know we're kind of in in a position where the bank really needs to reposition itself and re sort of sell itself. And, and And I think a lot of investors feel that the fundamentals are all there in terms of the bank's earning potential, in terms of its structure. But what needs to happen is that there, a clear message needs to be communicated, or better communicated, to the market about what Lloyd's is in the future.
3: Absolutely, and I think that's a really key point, and something that Mr. Tuki has come under criticism for. And this is really, you know, when Eric Daniels was in his final month as the former chief executive, you know, they came out with these very ambitious targets that immediately analysts and other people in the market just couldn't really understand where they, these were coming from. You know, they just seemed to think that all the trouble was behind them. You know, they were going to boost the margin, they were going to boost revenue and profit really quickly, like the recovery was well underway. You know, and then as soon as Antonio came in kind of six months later you know there was this huge scaling back of their goals and you know Mr Tookie was the one saying oh you know we were too optimistic and too ambitious and now and he sort of went the other way you know so it seems just to be a bit that he overstated and then he understated and there's just been huge mixed messages coming through on you know what the bank can hope for over the next few years and I just think you know they need to draw a line under that. I think also you know we had heard that he was Getting increasingly nervous about the new strategy that was put across by Antonio in June, even though that was much that was scaled back. He's starting to think, you know, the deterioration that we've seen in markets since then, and particularly in Ireland, where Lloyd's has a really big exposure, means again, you know, the, the bank might fail to meet these targets. You know, maybe he should uh, jump ship before um, the pressure grows. Do we know who's going to step into his shoes? We don't know for sure. They've said that they are launching Search internally and externally. He won't actually leave the role for another six months. He's going to stick around until the bank announces its full-year results in February. There are two really key internal candidates, Antonio Lorenzo, who was the former finance director at Santander. He came in a few months ago to be head of the wealth and international division, but people had speculated that that could be, you know, the first step to becoming finance director. However, it seems that the situation's been complicated a little bit now that Nathan Bostock is also joining Lloyd's from RBS. Now he was officially going to head up their non-core side of things and, you know, winding down their commercial real estate and so on, but he has made it clear in the past that he'd like to do a more hands-on sort of operational role. He could be interested in, in the finance director position. And he's not actually starting at the bank till February. So the timing would work out quite nicely if it was going to be him. But I think it would be between the two.
2: Sounds like we'll have an interesting horse race to watch. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. All that's left is to thank Sam Jones and Charlene Goff. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filichani. Till next week. Goodbye for now.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea?